Well, that's your brain trying to keep you safe. Welcome back to Clarity in Conversations. Same thing happens when we're left off an email chain and we feel that we're not being included. Miscommunication in offices around the world leads to delayed projects, frustrated colleagues, and missed sales. This can be avoided. There's fascinating research that gives insight into how to have creative dialogues and clear conversations in the office and at home. Full of practical tips, insightful research, and inspiring guests, this is Clarity in Conversations, a podcast by Frank Garten. Welcome to Clarity in Conversations episode two. And thanks so much for all the positive reactions I received on the first episode. That was a real pleasure. For me, starting this podcast was a big experiment into something new outside my comfort zone, which is where all learning starts, I'm convinced. Now, I'm very excited to move on and on a bi-weekly basis give you practical tips about how to improve conversations at work and at home. For today's episode, I wanted to further dive into why is it that so many conversations are poor and go downhill? Because even the most technical discussions between engineers and the most rational discussions in the boardroom, they all have an emotional component. Now, most engineers and board members I meet are very skilled at hiding that. But I don't listen to that anymore. By now I know enough about how the brain works to simply state that's not true. Emotions play a role. Now, in fact, in the brain there's even something that precedes the onset of these emotions. Before we react emotionally, there's a deep down automatic response in the brain of fight, flight or freeze. It's the mechanism that's hardwired in the brain and it makes an instant decision whether we trust someone else or not. And in the brain, there's an area called the amygdala, and that area gets fired up when we feel under threat. Now, reason enough to further dive into it and reach out to somebody who has studied these defensive responses during the 30 years she worked as an economist at the Bank of England and as a partner at McKinsey and Company. Today's guest is Caroline Webb, a British author, economist and executive coach these days. Caroline published her book, How to Have a Good Day, in 2016, and the book became an instant success. Now, the book these days is one of my Bibles, really, in the work I do. And when I visited Caroline in London earlier this year to talk about our respective work, my enthusiasm only grew more. So my obvious first question to Caroline was, so what is this defensive response? Well, that's your brain trying to keep you safe, which uh, which makes it sound like a pretty useful thing to have going on in your brain and in your body. And it is. It's what's kept us safe for, for millennia. It's our brains scanning the environment around us. That's an interesting paradox already because you say it keeps us safe and it sounds like something negative, right? Defensive. Well, well yes, but its origins its origins are entirely um, useful to us, really. I mean, and actually it's helpful to frame it as something which your your brain and your body are doing very naturally. Um, so yes, I mean, I, I think that um, your brain is scanning the environment around you for possible threats to defend you against, uh, and also rewards to seek out and discover. Uh, but it's scanning especially hard for possible threats to defend you against. And it, it's not just the physical threats that might have once challenged us uh, in, in prehistoric times. It's, uh, it's not just a, 
a huge woolly mammoth or saber-toothed tiger running towards us on the savannah. It's, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> um, otherwise, we wouldn't really have to deal with this in, in the kind of, in everyday life that we live in today. It's slightly different, yeah. yeah. But what you're saying is, you, that's interesting, you use the word scanning, so it's like we have this radar constantly checking our environments. That, that's a, a real active process that's unconsciously going on for us all the time. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But it doesn't take much to trigger that radar. Um, it, it doesn't just have to be a physical threat. Um, it can be anything which looks like it might undermine our sense of self-worth or social standing. And if you think about it, those things were also crucial for us for survival, even if they're not perhaps as directly crucial as you know, not being eaten by a wild animal. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, we're, we're social creatures. We survived by banding together in, in societies and tribes. And if we were not yeah. contributing and if we were not seen to be contributing by other people, that was a real risk to us. So our brains learned to see that as a threat as much as anything that was sort of perhaps more directly a physical threat. So that's it. Your brain is constantly scanning and on the alert for possible threats. And as soon as there's a threat around you, defensive mechanisms in the brain are triggered. Now these days, as Caroline said, it's not wild animals that form a threat to most of us in the office. So let's see what kind of things can be a threat to us in daily work. Yeah, really classic things. I mean, I, I actually use a little acronym to remind myself of CAP and FUR. CAP is the sort of self-focused stuff. It's competence, autonomy, and purpose. So if you feel out of your depth, you know, perhaps you start a new project and you're, you know that there's a lot that you don't yet know. Um, that can be enough to be interpreted as a threat um, if you see it as more worrying than exciting. Um, autonomy, we know what it's like when someone cuts across us or... I mean, even, even being, I don't know, um, uh, told what to do, micromanaged on a small thing like writing an email, uh, mm -hmm. that, can, that can be annoying. Uh, and if our brain perceives it as a sort of something really more uh, personally um, uh, insulting, then it can be certainly treated as a kind of threat. Um, purpose, you know, when we feel like something's pointless. And then on the social side, mm -hmm. for FIR, fairness, inclusion, respect, that's how I remember it. Um, and yeah, anything that, uh, that triggers our sense of unfairness. If you think about how you feel, if you let someone go in front of you as they're pulling out of a junction in a car and they don't mm -hmm. say thank you, um, same thing happens when we're left off an email chain and we feel that we're not being included or that we're talked over in a meeting, we're not being respected or mm -hmm. someone else paraphrases what we were trying to say and somehow everybody else loves what the other person said, but nobody listened to us. So these things okay, yeah. so, are going so on all the time. These are very everyday life examples of things that can happen and and what what i think with all these examples that you're giving is hey come on we're rational beings you know uh, i'm i'm left off the email chain well i'm i'm adult enough to know that that happens sometimes but what you're saying is that all that rational thinking i'm doing is not enough to prevent this response well what i'm saying is is yes and also in a way this is rational right in a way this is a rational response. If, if actually belonging to the tribe is a really, uh, it's something that has historically been a good thing, then being excluded suddenly 
um, you know, maybe it's no, no, no surprise that our brains treat that as a threat. So right. I'm a little yeah. bit more generous in my description of what's yeah. rational. <laughs> I think, you know, all of this behavior evolved for a reason. So what's the brain doing? Can you, without going into brain uh, chemistry in deep detail, but what's happening in the brain at the moment that you notice you're off the email chain or something, somebody's saying something unfriendly? Well, uh, we, uh, we notice that there's a potential threat in the environment. It doesn't have to be an actual threat. It can, even, it can you know, actually just be a potential threat. And our brain launches uh, what a... Um, there's a neuroscientist called Joseph Ledoux who, uh, who calls this the survival circuits. You know, some, some people mm -hmm. might have heard of the amygdala. The amygdala is actually just one part of the brain that responds. It's a really complex system that fires into action to say, okay, so something seems to be threatening your, your sense of self-esteem or your sense of social standing. Um, I'm going to launch a, a defensive response, which will be some form of fight or flight or freeze. And what that means is while your brain is directing a response to something really basic, so fight might be a snappish comment, flight might be, I don't know, ignoring an email, uh, freeze might be actually literally having your mind go blank in the middle of a meeting. So your brain is, is launching those defensive responses. You see less activity in the part of the brain that's responsible for more sophisticated thinking and planning. So the part of the brain that we know of as the prefrontal cortex. So, so the so problem is you become dumber at that moment, which is a shame, really. <laughs> you, you become dumber, yeah. Yeah, because that's what the prefrontal cortex is doing, right? All the rational thinking we're talking about, that's prefrontal cortex. So you, what you're saying is there's less energy available for, for that part of the brain to function well. Yeah, and the more you look at the way that the brain functions, you realize that you know it has limited capacity. It has limited... Uh, it gets tired easily. There's a limit to how much information it can take in at any given time. There's a limit to how much you can do at any given time. And so if you are powering up a defensive response automatically in response to something you th you know, you're perceiving as a kind of subliminal threat, mm -hmm. there is less left over for the more yeah. sophisticated thoughts. And, you know, that's why we under pressure might say something we regret. Yeah, uh, yeah. We might blurt something out. We might, as I said, my, our minds might go blank. It's not, it's not that, um, you know, you're not the only one if this is happening to you. Right. This is actually your brain <laughs> reallocating resources in a way that it thinks is helpful, but unfortunately in the modern workplace often is not. <laughs> yeah. And what's the result of that? So, so you're saying already that less energy is available for rational thinking. What, what, what are the other things that our brain cannot do very well anymore when it feels under threat? We do know that the parts of the brain that are responsible for executive function. So this is planning, self-control, forward thinking. It's everything that requires abstract thought that isn't immediately here and now. So uh, for example, I mentioned self-control. So that's why you end up sometimes blurting something out that you didn't mean to. Normally, uh, parts of your prefrontal cortex will be exerting some control so that you didn't say, I just think you're wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you do think the other person is wrong, somehow it comes out of your mouth when you know, when you're on your best self, you wouldn't say it out loud. You'd perhaps you perhaps no. launch a little bit of a routine to kind of keep yourself centered. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that, you know, all the things that we are when we're at our best, you know, our, our witty, charming, thoughtful, expansive, generous, 
creative self become harder to access when we uh, something has put our brain on the defensive. And of course, the challenge is that a lot of conversations in the workplace are kind of, you know, almost perfectly set up to, to trigger our defenses. So it's great that we're talking about this today. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, it, it was a shock for me to read it in your book, um, How to Have a Good Day, which is a wonderful book, by the way. But you, you described there that it's almost paradoxical, right? Like at the moment you need your self-control function the most, it's not there. Yeah, yeah. But the good news is that Although this is all happening at a very automatic level and very fast, I think one of the major journeys that you go on as a, as a successful professional is to learn to recognize this response in yourself and to develop a repertoire for handling it. Whether you use any of the words that I've used to label it or you know, whether you call it something else in yourself, I think that you know, as we get further into our careers, the level of complexity only gets greater and the level of uncertainty only gets greater. So I think that, uh, you know, the good news is this is learn, it is learnable. And that's good news. It's learnable. Although the defensive mechanisms in the brain that are triggered by perceived threats are automatic, we can learn to control our response to it. And when I work with teams these days, it's fantastic to see how toxic relationships can turn into quite productive cooperation when we learn some of these techniques. There are many of them, and one of the techniques that fascinated me for a long time now, because it sounds usually soft and touchy-feely, it's a very powerful technique. It's that science has shown and it has proven how much it can help us. When we become very much aware of the feelings we have in our body and the thoughts we have in our mind at the moment we feel under threat, we can already think clearer in the moment and respond smarter. And if you think that sounds like mindfulness, well, it does. Uh, there's a pile of evidence getting taller and taller every day about the effects that mindfulness has in uh, helping us manage or, uh, our, our emotions, emotional regulation as, uh, as behavioral scientists call it. And uh, one of the things that it certainly does is it helps to um, train us to pay attention to where we're at and to notice where we're at so that we have a point of choice. We can make a conscious choice about whether we want to continue down the track that we're on or whether we want to change track. So I occasionally have somebody in a training who says, yeah, that, that's all true. That sounds very true what you say. But in the end, business is about rational decision making, right? I'm a, I'm a technical guy. So what would you say to these type of people? <laughs> well, I, I would say that um, the software that's in our heads, the human brain is the most complex software that exists in, in the world. And, um, you know, uh, we need to understand how to optimize it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I just, I, I, I know that you use the word rational, uh, to mean one very specific thing. I, I often find myself pushing people to broaden their definition of what rational is, because I think that everything we do is, we are doing for a reason. Um, and so, you know, sometimes we do dumb things in pursuit of things that, uh, you know, we're, we're seeking out, but it's. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's all part of the human condition. I've never been in a situation at work, however technical. And my first job, by the way, was even more technical. I was, uh, I was a, an economist working in public policy. Okay, yeah. And it was absolutely crucial for us to be able to build strong teams to get the work done, to do really complex work. So work can be as dry as you like. 
but you still have to work with other people to get things done. Otherwise you might as well be a freelancer sitting in a cave. I like that. Another definition of rational or a bit broader um, way to look at it. Now, if, if we're in a conversation with somebody else, it, it sounds like it would be good to be aware of what the defensive response is and also being able to avoid that it happens for the other person. Is, mm. is, when I'm talking to somebody, is there anything I can do to avoid that I'm triggering defensive responses? It's, it's a good question. I mean, I think there are some techniques that you can use for yourself that work in meetings just as well as they work um, just on your own. So things that I like, uh, one is called labeling. So actually acknowledging how you feel and why you feel that way. So if you're on your own, uh, acknowledging I feel frustrated because I've just been left off this email chain and -hmm. it makes me feel like I'm not sure whether I'm doing a good job or not. Um, just naming that uh, has been shown to reduce the sense of state of threat in your mind. Okay. Uh, I'm not saying wallow in it for three days, but it, just crisply naming what's going on, labeling what's going on um, can be can be quite, you know, it has been shown to be quite helpful. Um, you can do the same in a meeting to some extent. You know, if something feels a bit sticky and it feels like there's a bit of tension to actually say to name it and to say, um, could we just pause for a moment? I'm, I'm feeling that I, it's possible we're, we've got cross wires. It's feeling a little bit sticky. What do you think? And anytime I've ever seen anyone else do it or I've done it myself, it has, there's been a breath of fresh air. There's been this, oh, this release as everybody acknowledges. Yeah, you know what? That wasn't great. Hang on, let's pause. Let's just pause for a second. Wow. If you, if you think about all these practical tips and, and, and your book is full of them, can you describe what it brought you to know these techniques? I mean, if, if you look on your career in McKinsey, which is now not the case anymore, you've moved on, but, but if, you, if you look back on your, your life in these big companies, how has it helped you particularly to, to know these techniques? I think it's been the big journey of my professional life to learn to recognize defensive mode and to become more adept at, at managing it. Uh, I would say that uh, throughout my 20s, Um, I took things personally and I started to pay attention to those who seemed to be more centered. I started to pay attention to leaders and managers who seemed to have an ability to bring the best out of people. So I started to just notice, and this was well before I got involved in organizational change or leadership development. This is when I was still, you know, working as an economist. And so, you know, a lot of it was observation and just thinking, "Hmm, okay, so there, there is a style here which I'm noticing involves self-awareness and asking good questions. And so when I, um, when I thought about how to blend my economics background with, uh, with the work that I really wanted to do, which was you know, organizational change, leadership development, leadership coaching, I really wanted to take that evidence-based approach from behavioral economics, behavioral psychology, behavioral neuroscience to say, okay, what can we learn about ways to handle this? And I think what happened was I just got really curious in the fact there was so much research out there on techniques that really worked and actually comparatively little translation into what I was seeing people being taught. All right. Yeah. So I I just I got very curious about, you know, whether it would be possible to do more to translate the research uh, into practice. Um, And of course, you know, I, I don't 
I really want to make sure that I'm one of those people who walk your own talk. So of course I would try things out myself and see yeah, what happens. Yeah. And every now and then still make a mistake. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I tell you one thing I did learn was that it doesn't matter how bad a situation is or how bad a conversation is. It's always worth, it, it, it's never too late to see whether you can make it right after the fact. To turn it around. Yeah. 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 So even the people who wrote a book about defensive responses regularly encounter them and keep learning every day how to handle difficult situations in a better way. How to have a good day is the book of Caroline Webb and it's full of practical tips for this. And one of the most powerful techniques I got out of the book is what Caroline calls good person, bad circumstances. So what's that? Good person, bad circumstances. When somebody is on the defensive, and treats you in a not nice way, then for one moment realize that they are not a bad person probably, but that they are a good person who deal with bad circumstances at that moment. Well, that is recognizing that the chances are that the person you're encountering who's not behaving at their best is probably not a psychopath. Only one out of 1% of the population uh, is a psychopath, or maybe 4%, depending on what the, you know, which study you read. Okay. Um, but the chances are much, much more likely that the person is encountering something which is not uh, treating them beautifully on this particular day, and that is probably undermining their self-worth or, self, uh, or social standing enough to put them on the defensive. And as we know, people simply aren't at their best when they're on the defensive. They're much more likely to say silly things, or, you know, do things that uh, they wouldn't do at their best. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I always remind myself when I encounter someone who perhaps is a bit grumpy with me to say, huh, I wonder what has put them on the defensive. What are the circumstances that might have created their their bad behavior today and you know even if even if they are an evil person which is you know again statistically unlikely <laughs> even if they are just the sheer fact of thinking oh well maybe their cat vomited on them this morning or you know maybe maybe their umbrella blew inside out this morning and that's what's put them in a bad mood you know it puts us it, it just humanizes the other person that's good person bad circumstances i mean maybe their cat vomited on them this morning so they're a good person, they're just in a bad situation at the moment. Now often in the office, instead of using techniques like this, we often use other techniques. We ignore the snappish comments from colleagues and we suffer in silence behind our desk. Or we respond by saying things like, yes, but, and then we quickly continue to say what we think is more important. We have all kinds of mechanisms to respond. And if we deal with it a bit more smartly, we give the other person even some constructive feedback. But I think we all know that as soon as someone says, can I give you some feedback? Our guards go up. Receiving feedback is hard. The thing that I see time and again is that people think they've learned how to give feedback, but actually they, they're not doing it right. Um, you know, when we're in a professional context, we need to learn how to give feedback to each other. But the way that most people give feedback is almost perfectly calibrated to put another person on the defensive. Um, we are incredibly vague and general about our positive feedback. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, you know, we say, you're great, you're great, you're doing great, it's all fantastic. But. But, and then 
you name one or two very specific things. Yeah. And then what happens is that the person's brain is, first of all, more tuned to look for threats than rewards because that's typically what's kept us safe. And so we respond more intensely to a negative piece of feedback than a positive piece of feedback. And then on top of that, the negative feedback is highly specific, which we also know brains find easy to process. Right. And the positive feedback is incredibly vague. And so it just slides off us. <laughs> yeah. And and so the, the, the problem then is that, you know, you think you've given great feedback, really encouraging feedback, but all the person hears is the negative. And so right. one thing that I find I work on more than you would imagine is to help people learn how to give really, really specific appreciative feedback that is not soupy or syrupy but is just saying okay i really like the way that you asked that question in the meeting because i noticed that it unlocked something different in the conversation and um you know i, I think it's great if you can do that more what would make me like like it even more is you know if you brought that that energy into every meeting that we have with the, with the customer right and, and then you're like rather than <laughs> Rather than leading with the, you know, you don't speak up in those meetings. Um, you just, you know, you're just really quiet. I don't know what's going on there. And of course, the other person's immediately feeling defensive. But if you can find the example of when they did something good and say, how can you do that more often? You're going to get a very different conversation. Right. Yeah. Caroline, if, if there, there's one question I ask everybody coming on the show, it's, it's clear talk. We're talking about clarity in conversations. What, what's one lesson to be more clear? in conversations i think it's to not assume bad intent in the other person and to really look at the facts of what's going on you know so often we infer that something that someone does has bad intentions behind it and actually it's just that maybe they're a bit short of sleep or they just forgot to add you to the email and you know it's it's often uh it's often helpful to just really go back to the the truth that we truly know the true facts of the situation and then to get curious and simply ask i noticed that i wasn't on the email chain uh tell me more about that i'm interested in the project you know can i get involved rather than you know stewing inside <laughs> and assuming terrible terrible intent uh, I think that's, you know, that's what I've learned. Surface the facts and then ask, uh, ask an open question. You'll get a lot further that way. That's Caroline Webb with great insights and valuable lessons for how to improve your days at work. And her book, How to Have a Good Day, can be ordered anywhere and is a must read if you ask me. Now, as we each time do in this podcast, I reflect back on the interview with Els de Meyer researcher on communication and innovation at Fontes Education in the Netherlands. So with Else, I talked about Caroline's comment that apparently we do all kinds of things in the office to ensure we belong to a group and we define ourselves as part of a group. So in the interview, Caroline talked a lot about belonging and mm. introduced even the concept of tribes, I which know. was totally unknown to me in this context at least. I know, it's, I was overwhelmed with joy when she said that because i really think if you look at modern groups of people working together yeah. as tribes it it opens up a lot of um possibilities to talk about trust to talk about sharing stuff about collaboration and it's exactly she, she actually says that you know she says like right if we're actually programmed to to see things that threaten us to you know to have an eye for that to see danger and to to detect that in our brain and she says one of the things then 
that is a threat to us is when people don't pull their weight in a tribe. So when people don't collaborate or when people don't add value because it actually weakens the group. So I think like I, I investigated a lot of um, collaborations myself and to interpret that interpret it in the sense of tribes i think it explains a lot of the behavior where you see that someone appreciating someone and and being willing to collaborate and show your own cards depends on how much value the other person brings to the table so if we actually see someone as in oh you know that's that's useful what he brings it's useful what uh, he says or she says, then we will kind of not detect that as a, as a threat and we'll see, right, he's contributing so or she's contributing yeah. to to indeed being part of the tribe. So that's your tickets to belong to the group, yeah, right? Exac- yeah, yeah, exactly. As in, right, you know, this is we can use this person. It's It sounds kind of bad, but I think that's maybe how it works even, you know. Now, the other thing is if you consider those groups as tribes is that a tribe has some characteristics. Like if you go back to really indigenous people for example and you consider tribes there uh, it's about the way you eat the way you dress the way um, you dance all those things symbols rituals exactly yeah. exactly and modern day uh, working groups have also those rituals but have also things they share like in and you can see that in their language and why i'm saying that is because what i have observed is that a lot of groups are are you you actually feel when you're not belonging in a group or in in a certain tribe because for example you don't know the jargon they use or because all of a sudden you you're used to working with a really strict um, meeting agenda and they seem to have all these kind of creative get-togethers rather than a really strict agenda so for you that's new and you see all right I'm not accustomed to that, so it's I don't really belong in this kind of culture you yet. You feel an outsider. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. And I think so. Abbreviations is a is a an example of that. So you signal, um, or you feel like you're not belonging. But here, I think we we touch upon something we've we've mentioned before: is that language doesn't only have an instrumental uh, role, but also a social role, because as it makes us feel outsiders, it's actually meant to make us feel like outsiders. So people. And I'm not saying they do it consciously, but when people use jargon and abbreviations, they really clearly signal that they understand each other. And, oh, you don't? All right, then I see that you're not really in yet, you know? So using those those abbreviations, for example, or that kind of language kind of signals that you're not in. And the same happens when you see, like I've found managers doing something very peculiar. So when I interviewed some of the managers for my research, what I noticed is that they spoke about, for example, oh, and I had this meeting with Rob, and Rob said this and Rob said that, and I had no idea who Rob was. But Rob was apparently an, um, someone they knew then, and right. yeah. because I didn't know him, and I, it was, it was, they wanted to show to me that they knew each other. They were an intimate group of people on first names. Base. So how, how conscious is that? Do you think so? So I don't know. they kind of consciously tell you you're not part of us. Well, or they want to. Well, maybe not as an as a conscious uh, decision to exclude me, but rather as um, wanting to um, position themselves in a certain way. So they they want to position themselves as being insiders. So maybe it's not consciously to make me feel like an outsider, but maybe more to make themselves feel and and show to me i'm an insider i'm with the i'm with the in crowd i know so it helps them to belong 
Yes, and belonging and, and to kind of create an identity and a, and a, a face for themselves as well, I think. That's Els de Meijer, researcher on communication and innovation at Fontes. Three tips to bring more clarity into your conversations. Tip one. Become aware of your bodily responses at the moment you feel under threat yourself. That's different for all of us, but we all know how we feel when we are under attack. And the more you are aware of the way you feel in your body when under attack, the more your brain knows that it needs to respond differently. So feeling you're under attack and recognizing this feeling as such brings your smart brain back online. Tip two. Apply good person, bad circumstances. So next time a colleague annoys you with what he or she is saying to you, then step back and think, what if this person is okay and has good intentions? Then what made him respond this way? Tip three. Make sure when you give feedback, to start with something really positive, but then also in a genuine and appreciative way. I mean, don't fake it or use it as an introduction to the negative, because we all know how artificial that sounds. So avoid to be incredibly vague. Just be very specific about something you really like about the other person, and then add, what would make me even like it more is when you... That's three tips. Thanks to Caroline Webb for being my guest today in today's episode of Clarity in Conversations. Now, let's bring clarity into our dialogue here in the podcast as well. We're interested to hear your reactions, your feedback, your comments, and especially on the last topic that Els de Meyer mentioned. We all see tribes in the office, groups of people that some people feel included in and some people feel excluded from. How big is that effect in your experience, in your office environment? Let us know. We're interested to hear that at frank at clarityinconversations.nl. That is frank at clarityinconversations.nl. And then in my next episode of this podcast, we will talk about listening skills. These skills that sound so easy and are so hard. And it's very hard to listen well. We'll discover that in next podcast with Laura Janicek, who is a professor at Rockhurst University. She's also a researcher, a speaker, and a business consultant. I always, I always tell people that there's one correct answer in life to every question, and that correct answer is, it depends. So that's Clarity in Conversations for this episode. Thanks to Caroline Webb for being my guest, Els de Meyer for her reflections, and production and editing was done by Airwaves. Thanks for listening to Clarity and Conversations, a podcast by Frank Garten.